0: Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands to heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants who walk before you with all their heart. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Regard your servant's prayer and his plea, O Lord my God, heeding the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you today, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may heed the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, Oh, here in heaven, your dwelling place, heed and forgive. This is the word of the Lord. I'd been living with this text all week, and Friday afternoon the sermon was finished. I went home late that afternoon and sat down to dinner with Gail about 630. The television was on to... Who wants to be a millionaire? And one of the young men, contestant, given one of those first, easiest questions, was asked in the Bible what was the Ark of the Covenant? An urn? A chalice? A chest? I forgot what the fourth one was. <laughs> <laughs> a font. Was it a font, an urn, a chalice, a chest? The young man who was supposed to be answering this very easy question said, Oh, my, I should have paid more attention during confirmation. <laughs> so he was saying, I am a Christian, baptized and confirmed, and I don't have a clue. So he said, I want to ask the audience. One of his helplines, I want to ask the audience. So the audience was supposed to press the appropriate button and the answers flashed up on the screen. Ten percent thought the Ark of the Covenant was an urn. Ten percent of them thought the Ark of the Covenant was a a font. A third of them believed the Ark of the Covenant was the chalice. Only 46 percent of that audience knew the Ark of the Covenant was a chest. It was a box containing the tablets of the Ten Commandments. King David had that beautiful box brought to Mount Zion, a small hill where he was building the new capital city, a hill he had taken from the Jebusites. David wanted at one point in his life to build a temple to the Lord God. God said, no, you're a man of blood, a man of war. This is not for you to do. Rather, Solomon, David's son, upon becoming king, built the beautiful temple on the hill adjoining. It was called Mount Moriah. Over the centuries, the little valley between these two hills has been filled in so that you can't really tell now. This was Mount Zion. This was Mount Moriah. But after the temple is completed, Solomon says, Now is the time to bring this beautiful box up from Mount Zion to the Temple Mount, and place it in the most holy place, our translation says. The rabbis call it what we have normally call it, the holy of holies. Place it in the holy of holies. The temple itself is a holy place, but there's a room in the very innermost part that's even more holy than the rest, more set apart than the rest, the holy of holies. This very special box. Four things I want you to think about as you wait your turn to come to the altar. Number one. This writer says, When the priest placed the box in the Holy of Holies, suddenly the whole place was filled with a great cloud, such a dense cloud that the priest had to retreat from the room, for the very presence of the Lord was in that place. This reminds us, of course, of more than 200 years before when Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they were guided by a a cloud in the daytime, and a pillar of fire at night. They believed with all their hearts that Almighty God was present. If you've seen Pope Benedict Sixteenth in his travels to the United States, as he conducted mass in great arenas and baseball parks and football fields, he brought the The little smoke that puffs out, puffs out, puffs out, driving out all these evil spirits of people screaming God and Jesus Christ over people missing baseballs or striking out or uh, missing a field goal. To drive out all those vile spirits and acknowledge the presence of Almighty God. The presence of Almighty God. Some of you remember when Dr. John Buchanan came to give our Barton Clinton Gordy series. He is still pastor of the famed Fourth Presbyterian Church of Chicago. It's on that magnificent mile that Oprah Winfrey talks about so often on her program. Beautiful, beautiful church. And Dr. Buchanan has been an outstanding pastor for that congregation for years now. Just recently, he wrote about what he and his family like to do in the summertime. They like to go to the beach. He said, no, I love the city. I love the city. He said there's an energy in Chicago that's infectious. I love to walk down the street when hundreds and thousands of other people are walking down the street. I see tourists looking at maps, trying to figure out where they're going next, and I love it. I see our our folks grabbing the cups of coffee on their way to work, picking up a morning paper. I love to get on the elevated and go out to the airport and catch a plane to anywhere in the world. It's exciting to be in the city. I love it. But I miss being close to God's nature. And so in the summertime, we go to the beach. Now, he said, when my children were smaller, it was fun to show them things that God has created. Now, he said, we have grandchildren, and we get to walk the beach with them. He said, it's fun to show a little child a starfish. It's fun to show them an old crab coming up onto the shore. It's fun to point out a pelican to them or a seagull. He said, we build sandcastles. We walk in the edge of the surf. We go to dinner in the evening. We come back and play games till it's time for everybody to go bed. And the next morning, we get up and do the beach all over again and look for the places where we see God. I love it, he said. And then he quoted in his article, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, four lines from one of her poems. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pick blackberries. Do you see, experience, acknowledge the very presence of God? So this first part of this text is about the imminence of God. God's nearness to us. That God is in every common bush aflame. Okay? Number two. But then this text also talks about the awesomeness of God, the transcendence of God. The Latin transcendere has to do with climbing across. Only God Almighty is big enough to climb across the whole creation. Dr. Stephanie Paulsell is a professor at Harvard Divinity School. She has recently written that her husband has a friend who loves astronomy. And this professor friend had said to him, you need to get this little software package for your computer that enables you to get into World Telescope. If you were to get this little bit of software, you can plug right into World Telescope and see what the greatest telescopes in the world, including the Hubble, may be seeing at any given time. So she said her husband went out and bought that and plugged it into their computer. And she said after dinner that night, he said to her, what would you like to see first? She said, Saturn. I've always been fascinated with Saturn, the rings around Saturn. So, with a couple of clicks of the mouse, she said, Boom, there it was. It was beautiful. The rings, so clear and so bright, this planet reflecting the rays of the sun. But you know what caught my attention? The darkness beyond. How deep the darkness beyond Saturn. My husband said, What would you like to see next? I said, Jupiter. He clicked and there was Jupiter, bigger, beautiful, beautiful, bright, reflecting the rays from the sun, but surrounded by deep, deep darkness. And we looked at Venus, we looked at little Mercury, we looked at Mars, the red planet. I was impressed with the beauty and the brightness of each one. I was impressed with the darkness around each one then she said, a few days later, I went to see a special art exhibit in New York City. And the featured painter here was El Greco. Remember when Gail and I went to Toledo in Spain and we saw paintings of El Greco? Our Southern Methodist University has one of El Greco's paintings in the Meadows Museum there. We have the finest collection of Spanish art in the world outside of Spain, at our Metas Museum at SMU in Dallas. You should take a look at that the next time you're in the city. There is an El Greco there that several wealthy Dallasites paid a lot of money for. Dr. Paulzel was saying that she was particularly fascinated by the painting El Greco, the Greek, you remember, who, who came to, to Spain to, to paint, by the Greek. He was painting his very last painting when he died, leaving it un, uncompleted. It's a painting of St. James. Now, he had proposed to paint 13 paintings, Jesus and all 12 of the disciples. And for some reason, he had chosen St. James to be the very last one. And she said, I was impressed again with the light in the face of James. I was impressed with his hand extended out as beckoning people to come and meet the Lord Jesus. But all around him, it was so dark. Darkness. That emphasizes the importance of things that are in the light. Yet God and God's Son are described as light coming into the world. And I'm reminded, she said, that there is no darkness in all the universe that God's light cannot cut through. So God is close, imminent. God is remote, transcendent. Number three important thing in this story, of course, is that box, that chest, those Ten Commandments. And a little bit later in Solomon's prayer, he says, God, heed the prayers of your people. You, the one of chesed, steadfast, never failing love, for your people who walk in your ways with their whole hearts. It's finally about doing the good that's in the commandments and avoiding the bad that the commandments point out. Don't do these things. Do these things. I've been trying to catch up on all my work this past week. Goodness, my desk was piled two feet high with mail. Emails, you know, had clogged up my computer. Had telephone calls that were waiting at home. It was just as big, a huge sack of mail. And I've been working through that all this week along with writing sermon and so on. The other night, fairly late, I was reading magazines at home and seeing one of my newest Newsweek magazines. There was an article there by Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas is 92 years old now. Uh, My, he was a young, good-looking guy when I was young. I, I remember any number of roles, but probably the one he's best remembered for now is Spartacus, wouldn't you think? Probably Spartacus. Well, Kirk Douglas is 92 now. And he was remembering in this article the horrible stroke he suffered 12 years ago when he was 80. Um, left his face terribly drawn and his speech garbled. He said after that stroke, he didn't want to get out of bed. He just wanted to lie in bed, hoped he could die. But his wife would come in and say, get your rear end out of the bed. This depression is because your life is all about you. When your life is about somebody other than you, it's going to look different to you. And Kirk Douglas said, I started remembering my mother and my father. My mother and father were Jews in Russia who for generation after generation had suffered the pogroms of the Russian people. Think of Fiddler on the Roof. And finally had decided we must go to a better place. And they came to the United States of America, landed at Ellis Island, penniless Russian Jews. Some years ago for my birthday, my sister gave me uh, an autobiography of Kirk Douglas. And he talked about being the rag picker's son, that his father uh, had an old pony and a a little cart, and he went door to door to door taking old, worn-out, dirty, filthy rags that other people were throwing away and washing and reconditioning them. That's the way the Douglas family got started in this country. And that his mother and father had really taught him, this is the greatest country in the world. Everybody has a chance in America. So he said after this stroke of his, he started asking people whom he thought would know they're in the Los Angeles area. Who are some people in our community who aren't having the chance they ought to have? And three things came to his mind as he heard all these people talk. Number one, there are women in Los Angeles who are homeless. They're sleeping in cardboard boxes. They're sleeping under bridges, many of them victims of abuse. They've been beaten and beaten and finally have had to run for their lives to keep their husbands from beating or killing them. Others are on the streets and under the bridges because they're alcohol or drug addicted. These women need a place to start over. And Kirk Douglas and his wife built this wonderful new home for homeless women in Los Angeles. He said, second, a cause that was lifted up to them were a the number of kids who were dropping out of school. Far too many dropping out of school turning their lives to to the gangs, to drugs, uh, prostituting themselves, and so on. And he told, here's a big group of kids that are marginal right now. Their next stop is reform school. Next stop is prison. And so they built a new school. And to try to motivate these kids, he said, I will personally give $500 to anybody who graduates high school. First year, they just had one. He just had to write one check. Next year, they had five. Next year, they had 13. The next year, they had 22. So he said, I'm writing more and more checks, and I'm loving it. Third, he said, we were told there were children in Los Angeles who have single parents, often having to work, or if they have two parents, often working double jobs. And these little children don't have a safe place to go, a place to be looked after. We need playgrounds. We need proper supervision of those playgrounds as well. How many do you need, he asked. And they said, well, we really need 400. Now, we spend money on the small playground we have at the church, and I can tell you that when you meet all the safety standards today, how soft the material has to be around a swing or a slide or a little merry-go-round, they are terribly expensive playgrounds. Thousands of dollars of playground costs. They told Kirk Douglas, we need 400. He said... Then let's build 400. And they have built 400 playgrounds. And Kirk Douglas, this one-time big movie star with his face distorted and his speech garbled, has attended 400 ribbon cuttings at the playgrounds in Los Angeles. He said, what? I'm 92, and I'm a happy man. I'm a happy man. You're depressed when it's all about you. When you make it about somebody else, life becomes what it ought to be. Number four. Number four. Solomon said, God heed our prayers. That's a little four-letter word, heed. I looked it up in my big, big unabridged dictionary this week. To be sure I was getting this. To pay careful attention to. Pay careful attention to. Heed our prayers and forgive us. The rabbis translate it simply, pardon us. Heed our prayers and pardon us. Forgive us. Set us right. I was aware uh, that Sean Penn had directed, produced a new movie called Into the Wild, but I had not seen it. And one night on the cruise, Gail and I were on. They were showing Into the Wild because it's about a kid in Alaska. And so we went to see that movie. It's not a happy movie. It's a very sad movie. It's a true story. The young man portrayed is, uh, was named Christopher McCandless. He was graduated from our Methodist Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, May 1990. But things were not good between him and his parents. Uh, his father had been married once before and fathered a child by the, the former wife, uh, had refused to acknowledge that the child was his, there were all kind of things that had gone on in the family, and Christopher decided he didn't want to be like his father, he didn't want to be, you know, working, 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 working to try to make more money, even though, of course, all that money had sent him to a very fine university, but he was graduated now and he wanted to do things his own way, so his mother and father and his sister were there for his graduation and they all went home expecting him to be there in a few days he disappeared he started driving in his car westward not northward where his family lived cut up his social security card cut up all of his credit cards cleaned out his bank accounts by sending every dollar he had left to a charitable charitable group started driving he drove across the country finally abandoned his car even took the license plates off of it and buried them so that no one could trace the car Put a backpack on his shoulders and started marching across America. He walked, caught rides, bummed rides on trains. A security guard nearly beat him to death one night when he caught him. A kayak down a major river all the way into Mexico got into trouble there as well. For 18 months, he bummed around looking for what is real and ended up in Alaska. He didn't read enough, didn't study enough about Alaska. Um, He found an old abandoned school bus in a very remote part of the woods and moved into that old uh, school bus, uh, managed to survive for about six months. But when finally, after keeping his diary all this time, books he was reading, things he was rethinking in his own life, he decided it was time to go home, at least go somewhere else. And as he started... He came to the river and discovered that the melted snows had swollen the river. There was no way it could get across. Now, if he had read a little bit more, he would have known that just a couple of miles upstream, there was a a cable that went across that river. Even when it was full of water, he could have clipped onto it and sailed right across. If he had just talked to some rangers at a ranger station, he would have been given a map and they would have shown him where there are various cabins in the remote areas of Alaska that are stocked with food and water for emergencies, such as the one he was now experiencing. He hadn't done that. And so he started eating what he thought was safe to eat, and he ate some seeds off a plant that were not safe to eat. They disrupted all the enzymes of his uh, inner organs and all digestive process is stopped and he literally starved to death Um, died in that old school bus he was found by some moose hunters about three months later and his diary was found as well and eventually published in the form of a book and then made into a movie by Sean Penn into the wild the last thing he had written in the diary was I've discovered that happiness is not real until it's shared He reflected on his 18 months of walking across the country and remembered a couple who had picked him up one day, had taken him to the campground where they were going to spend several days, had shared their food with him, had shared time around the campfire with him, had been genuinely present to him, really cared. One day when he was hitchhiking along, walking and hitchhiking, an older gentleman picked him up, Hal Holbrook plays that role in the movie, an old man who lives by himself now can tell this young man has abilities. bright, he's articulate, invites him home with him for a few days, asks him to stay on, become a son or a grandson to him. No, the young man says, I'm going to Alaska. And though this Hal Holbrook character does not know what this young man's running from, he says to him at one point, I've learned that if you forgive, it turns into love And love is real. If you forgive, it turns into love. And love is real. One invites you to the table who is love and will forgive.